Thank you, Joel and team. Appreciate your ministry of uh, music and worship leading us together this morning. If you have your Bible, please open it with me to Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing our study of this New Testament letter. Uh, The the topic of the uh, series is gospel and community. It's kind of these two pictures of the importance of the truth of the gospel and the importance of uh, fellowship and a family of believers to do life with that comprise the uh, theme of the book that we are in. Uh, Before I begin, I'll uh, just acknowledge that we're a couple of weeks from Easter Sunday, uh, really a grand day in the life of the family of God as we remember the resurrection of Christ and all that that means for us. And of course, you know, is a, a day when many uh, people who are not maybe normal churchgoers will consider going to church. And we anticipate having a number of guests on that day and are looking forward to that. Something we began several years back is taking an Easter offering that we would designate a uh, focus for our giving, and we would give that money away, uh, not for our use here. And this year, our theme is our future daughter church plant here at Bethany. And so as you consider giving in our Easter offering, know that that will go to uh, next fall, the creation of a new church in our community, a new gospel lighthouse to share the good news of Christ. And Uh, I am dreaming of uh, $25,000 coming in in that Easter offering to add to what we already have set aside for a daughter church plant. $25,000, that's nothing to you and me, Keith, right? That's chump change, brother. I just, I just toss that in myself, right? No. Uh, we, we, we are thankful for the work of the body, the fact that together we can do more. And, and as a church family, we could do amazing things. And I hope that you will join me even now in preparing your heart and thinking about giving toward that very special uh, offering on Easter Sunday. Uh, we are in Philippians chapter 4. We're coming to the end of the exhortation Uh, portion of chapter 4. And as I have been preparing for this message really over the last month, I've been reminded of a series that I did a long time ago here in our church. It was back in the first year that I was serving as the uh, lead pastor here at Bethany, and it was the fall of 1999. And I did a series at that time on the fruit of the Spirit. And we walked through uh, what those uh, characteristic spiritual fruits were of love and joy and peace and patience. And and we were studying that together. And and I I believe that that was a foundational uh, study in a very significant time in our church. Our church had gone through a tough season about a year before and and uh, a, a former staff member left and a bunch of people left with them and and we were we were kind of being brought back to the question who does God want this church to be and what is God's plan for us and as we leaned into that series I remember the sense that God was using it that God was doing something special I remember that one of our worship team members even wrote a theme song 
for that series that we sang each week as we leaned into those. And as I reflect back almost 25 years, I think the thing that sticks with my heart is the fact that, that I learned and I hope that we learned together that the fruit of the Spirit is somehow this mysterious combination of the work of God in us. God is the author of love and joy and peace and patience and all those things. But it is also a personal choice that each individual must make. You and I can choose to love. And you and I can choose to rest in peace. And you and I can choose to exercise patience. And that the fruit of the Spirit was really this divine human tandem coming together where God is at work doing what only he could do and that we are joining with him in the work and adding our volition to it and that we would become those wonderful attributes. And in a particular Sunday in that series, I spoke on the, on the spiritual fruit of joy and I titled that sermon, The Choice to rejoice. See how clever I was? That rhymed. The choice to rejoice. And as we move on in our study in Philippians today, and as I was readying my heart and my mind, I was reflecting back on that earlier experience. Because there's a, a, a section in our study here that is focusing on joy. In fact, joy is one of the overarching themes of the book of Philippians. Philippians is a, a joyful book. And there's much that Paul is saying to this small gathering of believers to help them to choose joy. Uh, joy is not contingent on good circumstances but on our ability to choose joy regardless of our circumstances. Somebody say amen. Uh, you don't have to have all good things happening to have joy in your life, Christian. Uh, joy can happen in the midst of awful circumstances if you choose it and if the Spirit of God is working that up in you. And the question that will come with that is, all right, Pastor Tim, how do I choose joy? And the answer that the scripture is going to make very clear to us today is this. We need to control our thoughts. Our thoughts have more bearing on our perception of joy, our experience of joy than anything. And you and I have the capacity to control our thoughts in a general way. And this is what our text today is going to explain. If you have your Bible open to chapter 4, I want you to notice that in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, my brothers, therefore is a transition word. He's, he's saying, I'm about to say something that's based on what I just got done saying. That's what therefore Means, And we note that at the end of Philippians 3, Paul is challenging the believers in Philippi to recognize their need to be Christ-like. 
At the end of chapter 3, Paul says to the Philippians, you need to choose your behaviors. Your life needs to be a picture of Jesus. And to the degree that you have a Christ-like life, God is going to work there. And then he says, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, based on that principle of Christ-likeness, he is going to move into the section which we're going to wrap this morning with verses 8 and 9, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, dealing with their need to stand firm. He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so after talking to them about their need to live like Christ, he's in chapter 4 going to be urging them to stand firm in their faith. And he's teaching his way through this section up to verses 8 and 9 where he will close this thought. Chapter 4 verses 10 and following are really the conclusion of the letter And we'll begin that next week, looking at how does Paul bring this wonderful teaching letter to a conclusion. But he's concluding this section on spiritual stability and how to live the Christian life. And in his final exhortation, he's going to address the matter of our minds and the things that we think about. The Bible leaves no doubt that we are a product of our thoughts. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, the scripture says this, For as a man thinks in his heart, do you know what comes next? So is he. Like a computer, if we put garbage in, we will get what? Garbage out. Jesus understood this about us. In fact, in his, the greatest sermon ever preached on planet Earth in the Sermon on the Mount, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And when Jesus talks about the heart, he's really talking about our modern-day conception of the mind. The heart was the center of a person's being in biblical times. It was the source of thoughts and actions. Today, we would less reflect on that as a heart issue and more as a mind issue. And therefore, Paul's call for biblical thinking in Philippians 4, 8, and 9 is relevant for us. In particular, because in our culture today, we tend to be so pragmatic. People care more about whether a strategy works than they do of if it's true. And more than both of those is the biggest question in our culture, how will I feel about it? You see, truth today seems to be whatever works and whatever produces positive emotions. And this pragmatism and emotionalism has found its way even into the theology and practice of the church today. 
Sadly, the church is often more concerned about whether something will be divisive or offensive than whether or not it is biblically true. And in contrast, true faith is a reasoned response to revealed truth. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus rebuked the disciples for the sin of worry. This morning, our scripture reading was on that theme of what do we worry about. And as Jesus chided them, he told them, hey, consider the lilies of the field and consider the birds of the air. Why are you worrying? God takes care. And in that whole interchange, Jesus is challenging his disciples regarding their thought life. And in a very remarkable section in uh, this book, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones for a long time was pastor of the Westminster Chapel in England and a a very uh, scholarly thinker and helper of the body of Christ. And again, I'm going to break all the rules on quotations right now. This is longer than I'm supposed to be able to use, but this is rich. And here's Lloyd-Jones talking about Jesus chiding his disciples about thinking. Lloyd-Jones says this, Faith, according to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, again, the, the, consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Faith, according to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. That is the real difficulty in life. Life comes to us with a club in its hand and strikes us upon the head, and we become incapable of thought, helpless, and defeated. The way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. We must spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic, and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them, Jesus said. The trouble with most people, however, is they will not think. Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask, what's going to happen to me? What can I do? That is the absence of thought. It is surrender. It is defeat. Our Lord here is urging us to think and to think in a Christian manner. That is the very essence of faith. Faith, if you like it, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting on thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. And that is the essence of worry. If you lie awake at night for hours, I can tell you what you have been doing. You've been going round and round in circles. You just go over the same old miserable details about some person or something. And that is not thought. 
That is the absence of thought. That is the failure to think. Wow. (laughs) Tell us what you really feel, Lloyd-Jones, right? He just got all over us. But his point is so eloquent. Church, we have to understand the paramount importance of choosing what we focus on with our thoughts. And this, in the next two verses of Philippians, is Paul's bedrock thought. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, begins with these two words. Finally, brothers. This is a summative statement. Paul is is at the pinnacle and he's about to make an enormous point and he's doing so in light of what we have thus far covered in the book of Philippians. I didn't give you notes to follow along, but I'll give you an outline on the screen here. And I want to start with this thought, that life is a constant search for joy. When Paul in verse 8 says, finally, brothers, he is about to launch forth in his point based on a review of what we know to be true from this little letter that we have spent so much time studying together. As children of God, we are rightful heirs to the blessing of God, including the blessing of overflowing joy. This is our birthright. This is what God has told us about ourselves. And we have a calling and responsibility to express joy by the way that we choose to live. This is seen in another letter that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians where he said, Be joyful always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? How do we choose joy always? How do we pray constantly? How do we give thanks in all things? It seems to me that this concept of joy that Paul has been challenging us about is something that he's been beating the drum on through all the chapters of this little letter. In the very beginning of the letter, Paul said this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Paul began Philippians by saying, I'm praying for you guys all the time, and when I do it, I do it in an attitude of joy. Joy is my context. He will explain it again in chapter 2. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial altar of your faith, because Paul was suffering and in prison and, and paying a great price for the ministry that he's undertaken, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all, even in prison. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And then he says, oh yeah, and likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And I can see the Philippians saying, really, Paul? In prison? Yes. Joy doesn't depend on favorable circumstances. In chapter 3, 
Paul said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Another occurrence of what we see in chapter 4, verse 8, finally, it's a summative statement. Rejoice in the Lord. And as we move to the fourth chapter, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Over and over again, throughout this little letter, Paul has been admonishing the Philippians to recognize that they can be joyful. They, they want joy. They aspire to joy. They can have joy if they would recognize that joy isn't dependent on good circumstances, but it's a choice that they make. And he has urged them repeatedly to maintain an attitude of joy in the midst of their circumstances. Well, I was on vacation a few weeks ago. One of the books I read was in prep for preaching today. And it's a book by a kind of a, a, a Christian business leader, a guy by the name of Tommy Newberry. He's kind of a success coach, you know, one of these life coaches that helps people go from where they are to the next level. But he wrote this amazing little book called The 4-8 Principle. It's based on Philippians 4-8. And in this book, he is discipling business leaders to recognize that God has given a principle in Philippians 4.8 that can deeply impact the way that we live. And I want to uh, read a quote to you from that book. Uh, Newberry said this. He said, being joy-filled does not mean that your life is perfect. Who can claim that? It doesn't even mean that your life is great. What it does mean is that, you, is that you're emphatic, emphatically trust, that you emphatically trust God and believe that he has great plans for your life. See, I'm so old, I better look at something I can actually read, like my notes, instead of trying to read the TV screen 10 feet away, because I'm that old now, and... 10 feet is like a mile in 17-year-old measurements, right? All right, where am I? Um, that God has great plans for your life regardless of what is happening right now. He says, joy is the infectious and uncontainable fruit of a divinely inspired growth. It is a deeply entrenched, unshakable belief the result of sustained right thinking and dwelling on the nature and character of God. And then he says this, joy is an outward sign of inward faith in the promises of God. Think about that. Where does joy come? It's because we trust God. He continues, it's a way of acting and it is evidence of spiritual maturity. Joy is not a distant destination at which you arrive. Rather, it's a path you choose to travel each day. And I say amen to that. Joy, Christian, is a choice that we can make. It's a choice we make when we exercise faith in God's promises regardless of our circumstances. It is a resolved belief in God. It is a trusting of God. It is the confidence that comes from knowing that God is in control. Listen to me, church. This is how you can have joy during a pandemic. Some of you lost your joy the last few years because you got your eyes on the what-ifs and what-could-bes, and it 
took from you your confidence in God, that God is sovereign over the problems of this world. He is absolutely in control. Nothing will happen to you but what not at first passes through his hand and gets his assent to happen to you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you lost your joy during the political turmoil of the past few years because you got your eyes off the fact that God alone is in control in this universe. We can choose joy and have joy as we control our thinking and it can have a great impact. This is how our friends in Cuba, who I was with a week ago, are able to have confidence and joy in God in the midst of a very difficult context in a communist country where they don't know where tomorrow's food will come from and where their sick child cannot get the medication that they need. And yet they are choosing joy and trusting God. <sighs> Controlling your thinking and choosing joy is how you smile through cancer. Controlling your thinking and choosing joy is how you sing on your deathbed. You will find joy if you search for it by believing in the promises of God. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, Paul is summarizing this overarching theme that he has been developing throughout the book. In the rest of the verse, it's very straightforward. Joy is the byproduct of right thinking. This is very familiar, and I just want to walk quickly through eight descriptive terms that are to be the focus of our thought life. Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true. The word truth means that which is reliable and faithful. A truth is distinguished from what is false or a lie. What Paul is saying is that our minds need to be fixed on whatever is real and genuine and authentic. What is true, in fact, is found in or aligns with the Word of God. Focusing on what is true leads to true Christianity in your life and mine. Another definition of truth is this. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. We all live in this world where there's been this cataclysmic pivot in logic, and all of a sudden truth is now subjective, defined individually by everyone under the sun. It's no longer truth, but it's quote-unquote my truth. That's ridiculous. It isn't my truth. It isn't your truth. It's just truth. Somebody say amen. And truth is not dependent on our personal experience of a thing. Truth is not determined by our feelings or our filters. 
And if we don't get that straight, how can we focus on what Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, that's what you need to think about. Second description, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. The word honorable means that which is noble or dignified or lofty or elevated or venerable. It represents that which is of high and lofty morality. And we have to set our thoughts on elevated things if we're to obey this command. We need to think about things that lift us up rather than things that bring us down. We should concentrate on those things that are decent and upright. And Paul is saying in this command, get your mind off of low and base things and focus instead on that which is honorable. This is a a virtue, biblically. It's what we are called to do. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable. Number three, whatever is just. The word just means upright or holy. Some of your translations will will say holy on this third one. In ancient times, this word for just was used of scales in the marketplace. The, the market keeper would have a standardized weight that he would put on one side of the scale, and then he would put an amount of grain on the other side until it balanced. And when you got the scale set to where it was perfectly in balance, the scale was said to be just. At that time, they were considered right or just, and that's the same idea here. We are to think about things that are just and holy. Number four, whatever is pure. The word pure comes from the root word for holy or holiness. It it refers to something that is unmixed with impurities, something that was morally clean, And Paul says that we need to fill our minds with things which are morally pure. We should think about whatever is wholesome and virtuous and unstained by corruption. I think Paul's saying this, hey, Christian, you need to exercise some censorship with your own thoughts. You need to determine what you are going to think on and what you are not going to think on. And Paul's command is that we, if we're to live a pure life, need to have our minds focused and dwelling on that which is pure. Fifth one, whatever is lovely. The term lovely speaks of that which is pleasing or attractive or beautiful. But it's more than outward beauty that's being spoken of here. It's the beauty of holiness It's in contrast to the ugliness of sin. Lovely represents that which is sweet and gracious and generous. It's the opposite of that which is raw or crude or ugly. And whatever is lovely is easily determined by it being beautiful in the eyes of God, by by it being spiritually attractive to those who are pure in heart, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, sixth description. The word commendable means that which is well spoken of or highly regarded. 
The idea refers to things that are well spoken of by God. It is that which is highly regarded in the eyes of our maker. And those with a high and holy calling on their lives should be dwelling on what is morally respectable and appreciated and commended by God. The last two phrases in verse 8 as Paul is winding his way, whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And then he says, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. He's using this phrase to help these things stand out. If there is any excellence. Excellence is the word for mental virtue. It's only that which reflects high moral standards. Those things should dominate our thinking. If we dwell on what is excellent, we will likewise become spiritually excellent. Our affections will then be consumed with God's perfect and pleasing will, which all starts at the highest level of the mind. If there is any excellence, and finally, if there is anything worthy of praise, this encompassing anything that can be praised by God, it means that we should think about whatever can be applauded in the presence of God. These eight marks define what we should saturate our thinking with. And ultimately, each of these virtues is a description of the Lord Jesus. His thoughts could be described by these eight things. Pure, just, holy, excellent, worthy of praise. This is an apt description of the inner life of the Lord Jesus. And whatever meets these marks become acceptable and pleasing to God, but whatever falls short of these standards God says, are unacceptable. And he reminds us that we have to guard our minds because we will soon become like that which we are thinking of. I hope you caught what I just said. You will become like that which you think of. What our minds focus on, our lives become. What our minds focus on, our mouths will eventually speak. We have this steering wheel in the journey of life, and it's our mind, and it's our thought life, and it's our focus. And Paul is making plain that we have to exercise control in that. Let me show you another quote from uh, Tommy Newberry again, and I'm going to stay right here and read it. Newberry says this, Whatever you dwell upon becomes increasingly prominent in your own mind. For example, the more you emphasize your good health with both your silent thoughts and public speech, the healthier you feel. The more you stay mindful of the positive qualities of your spouse, the closer and stronger your relationship will become. Boy, doesn't that ring true. The more attention you give your kids, the more influence you will have in their lives. The more you mull over God's promises, the greater your spiritual convictions become. Alternately, 
the more you mentally replay a particular injustice, the more frustrated you will, without a doubt, become. Your emotional life can advance only after your negative thoughts retreat. You will always feel what you dwell on. How do we train ourselves to think on these eight things that Paul has said? Well, we have to recognize, in fact, the last two had that introductory line, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything praiseworthy, pointing out that Paul is stating a bottom line summary. And I love how the Amplified Bible translates the end of verse 8. Look at it on the screen. The Amplified Bible, if there is any virtue and excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on and weigh and take account of these things and fix your mind on them. The Amplified Bible takes the nuances of the original language words and and uses twice as many English words to help us see it, right? It's why we don't carry the Amplified Bible. It's this thick. But there's insight here in the repeated gavel drop of what it means to have our minds fixed on something. We need to think on and weigh and take account of and fix our minds on these things. And that leads to the last verse, verse 9. And verse 9, I've uh, put in the outline this way, that joy is the byproduct, not just of right thinking, but of right actions. Look at verse 9. If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. In verse 9, Paul gives four ways that we should put into practice what he has described in the preceding verse. How do we keep our mind focused on that which is true and lovely and pure and excellent? And Paul says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the example that I have left for you. He says that he wants them to understand the things they have learned from him. This refers to the things that Paul had taught them or had preached to them when he was with them in Philippi. He wanted them to focus on the truths that he had expounded and the sound doctrine that they had learned while he was there. These are the things learned. Then he says, I want you to focus on the things received. And I think this refers to the things that Paul had written in his letter to them that we have been studying written on a scroll and, and, and passed to them by a courier, and they received that letter from Paul. He wanted them to understand the importance of biblical literature. This is why we here at Bethany are a Bible church, because we love the Word of God, and we teach it, and we preach it, and we memorize it, and we pray through it. And we want you to be a biblically educated and astute Christian, it makes all the difference in your walk with God to know God's words. And these were the things that these Philippians had received 
by way of their letter from Paul. The things learned from me, the things received from me, the things heard. And I don't think this necessarily means they heard it from Paul's mouth. I think it could include things they heard from other people about Paul and his ministry. I think there were people who were talking, how's Paul doing in prison? Uh, how does Paul react to unjust suffering? Well, is Paul trusting God's hand in his difficulties? Is Paul turning the other cheek? Is Paul anxious and worried? Or is Paul filled with peace? I think that Paul wanted the reports that they were hearing about him and about his imprisonment. Uh, he wanted them to use those reports as a powerful teaching tool for them to encourage them and keep them focused the things learned the things received the things heard about and finally the things seen and these are the things that paul had modeled for them the things they had directly witnessed of him he wanted them to remember how he walked how he worked how he worshiped christ with them he wanted them to understand how he had handled disappointment, how he had acted, and maybe more importantly, reacted as life came at him. Paul saw his own life as a tool to help them live a godly life themselves. And they were to imitate him as he ultimately imitated Christ. And Paul says to them in verse 9, he says, practice these things. He wanted them to do them. He wanted them to think in those eight ways. And he wanted them to remember the model and the example that he had been. And he wanted them to act in, in comport with those things. He wanted them to execute and perform and practice. And by the way, when it says practice these things, that's a command in this verse. It's a present active indicative, which means it's not a do it once and you're done, but it's a do it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Practice these things. Keep on doing them. Keep controlling your thinking. Keep following the example that I have left for you. And if you will do that, there is a reward that awaits you. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Peace is the reward that Paul speaks of. Worry is when we trust our fears more than we trust God. And I think it's interesting because in the two verses that precede the verses we've looked at today, we read these words. This is from last Sunday. But Paul concluded that section, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that peace and by implication joy is the reward that comes. The worst thing about worrying, church, is worry displaces the genuine thoughts focused on what is true and right and pure and excellence and worthy of praise. 
And when we worry, it dissolves our peace and our joy. You can't worry and be grateful at the same time. You can waver. You can worry for a few minutes and then be grateful for a few minutes. And then, Am I describing anyone here when I do this, right? We all get that. We can waver between the two. But you can't do both simultaneously. If you would deliberately concentrate on your current blessings or maybe on your future blessings, worry will fade away. It just drops out of our life. It takes practice to do that. But if you do that, you will experience joy and peace the very first time you give it a try. And I think it's helpful to remember, uh, Mark Twain once said, I have been through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. (laughs) Most of what we worry about never really comes to be, does it? I want to close this morning with one more quote from uh, Newberry's book, which is so encouraging to me. Newberry says this, Even though we are free to choose what we think about, we often tell ourselves destructive things that limit, at least temporarily, the things God wants to do through us. Pay attention to almost any conversation for about 10 minutes, and you will hear toxic self-talk, whining, commiserating, blaming, condemning, and justifying. You'll hear people passionately arguing in favor of their most cherished limitations. Some insist they're not being negative, but being realistic, giving an honest description of their lives. The the rationalizations may be convincing, and most have become socially acceptable staples of speech, but when people violate Philippians 4.8, Consequences, large or small, will always follow. So I say to us this morning, church, let's determine to control our thinking and to listen to God's advice and to labor to our greatest degree not to violate Philippians 4.8, but instead to choose to rest and trust in the promises of God and in that place experience joy and peace for this life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the word of God is living and active and it is so practical. I can't think of anything that more touches our lives today than these instructions about what we should think about. And I thank you, God, that you have made us so that we are not puppets to our thoughts, but we are masters of our own minds, that we can choose what to dwell on and think about and where to camp in our emotions and our thoughts, that, God, you have enabled us to be in control of that. And you've given us this beautiful promise that if we would trust in you and we would think about things that are true and lovely and just and pure and excellent and praiseworthy, Lord, if we would keep our thoughts there, that you would meet us with the peace of God that passes understanding. And that you would bless us with joy in our walk with you the kind of joy that is not contingent on circumstances, but the kind of joy 
that is the hand of God upon his child. As we continue in prayer, some of you need a little peace. And for some of you, it's been a while since you've known the joy of your relationship with God. And if that's you, I just urge you in the quietness of your chair to pray to God and to ask him to work in you to choose what you think about this week so that you can know God's peace and you can know God's joy. Ask him to help you. Do it now. Father, you hear our hearts. Lord, you know every person in the room. You know who needs joy and peace. And I pray that by your spirit, you would remind them this week to keep their thoughts on that which is true and just and pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. Help us to live this command. It's in the name of your son we pray, amen.